bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore the Christian faith, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into the Word of God. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. Well, good morning, Rolling Hills Franklin. It is so good to be with you all. I am Kelly Minter, and I am typically at our Nashville campus. So it is delightful to have made the trip to Franklin today and to be with you. Uh, I love the song that our worship team just led because we really are praising and worshiping the same God, the same one who parted the Red Sea, the same one who uh, appeared to Mary, the, the same one who stilled the, the mouths of the lions. I mean, there are so many things that we read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we really do serve the same God. But I wonder if for some if there was a little question as you were singing that song as to whether or not truly the same God is doing the same things. Um, is he really still for us? Is he still working in our lives? And you might even be personalizing that. Is God still active? Is he still working? Is he still near to me? I want you to think about a before and an after in your life because today we're gonna be talking about a group of people that had a very distinct moment in their history that separated life into before and after. And maybe you can look back over your life and you can think, okay, life was, was good at this point, life was stable at this point, or my relationship with the Lord was good, I believed in Him, I believed in His goodness, but then this happened and life has never been the same. Life before this event was one thing, but now life after this event is different. And it might be something that you did. It might be something that was done to you. It might be a loss. It might be a health issue, but you can look at that moment. You go, life was different after. And the reason I want you to keep that in mind at the very top of our time together is, is because that is what we're gonna be looking at is, is God faithful through the before and all the way into the after in our lives? Is the same God still going to remain true? Is his promises, are they still going to hold? That's what we're gonna be looking at. And so we are gonna be in the book of Ezra this morning. Ezra, and I know when you were driving here on your way to church, you're like, man, I hope Kelly's gonna, I hope she's gonna turn to Ezra. Out of every book in the Bible, that's the one I'm really hoping for. Well, guess what? You are in luck. This is your lucky day because we're going to be in Ezra and we are going to look at the first five verses. And the reason that I want to jump straight in this morning is because the very first verse of Ezra 1 is going to open up a host of questions for us that we want to be able to answer so we can get our bearings in this upcoming series where over the next few weeks, Jeff's going to be in Nehemiah, but here we are in Ezra. So Ezra Chapter one, verse one, it says this, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused or stirred the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah 
and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred or roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All right, so we are at a very strategic time in Israel's history. And for us to really understand how incredible uh, this story is, we have to understand where it takes uh, place in history. We have to understand who the players are because I don't know if you noticed, but in the very first verse of chapter one, the author opens up talking about King Cyrus, the Persian empire, and the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah that was being fulfilled. I'm just going to tell you honestly, as of a few months ago, I had not brushed up on my King Cyrus, Persian Empire, and Jeremiah knowledge, which means that I'm going to be a little bit lost throughout the rest of the book until I get my bearings here. So as you were thinking, again, your expectation on the way to church, you were hoping that I would be here looking at Ezra. I want to just say I'm about to just up it for you. We have a timeline this morning. I know you were, you're so excited. This is what you want in church. A timeline that shows us where we are in history. This is 587 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, enemy nation, comes and destroys Jerusalem. Remember when I talked about the before and the after? This is the definitive moment that divides Israel's history into a before and an after. This is the definitive moment where the people of Israel go from being called Israelites to becoming Jews. Nothing will ever go back to life pre-exile. Life will never be the same. But the question is, will God remain the same? And will God still hold true to his promises. So this happens. Why does Nebuchadnezzar destroy the temple and deport the Israelites out of Babylon? Because God's people had turned their back on the Lord in just egregious faction. We are not talking about small little sins. They weren't just telling some white lies. It was unbelievable rebellion, unbelievable sin that was so damaging to their relationship with the Lord, their relationship with one another. And you can read about this in Ezekiel, where when the attack happens, the spirit of the living God actually leaves the temple and leaves the city of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel can see the spirit of God leaving the land of promise. I don't think any of us could possibly imagine what it would be like to wake up this morning without the spirit of the living God in our presence. So this is a staggering moment for Israel. And if you, if you just remember one date in Israelites history, 587 BC is the one that you want to hang on to. All right, so we just read about King Cyrus, though, this interesting character that is going to allow the exiles to return in 539 and in 538 BC. So who is King Cyrus? Well, he attacks Babylon. The king of Persia attacks Babylon right over here and begins and overtakes, expands his kingdom of the Persian empire and takes over Babylon. So now the exiles, the Jewish exiles who have lived decades in Babylon are now no longer under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, but are under the rule of Cyrus, the king of Persia. But he 
under the prophecy and under the direction of the Lord, he allows the Jews who want to return to their land to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Approximately 60 years later in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra, under a different king, is allowed to return to Jerusalem and bring the word of God, the law, back to Jerusalem. And then a number of years after that, we see that Nehemiah returns with the exile to rebuild Jerusalem. In the Hebrew Bible, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one single book. So scholars will always tell you, if you're ever going to teach on one, make sure you teach on the other. If you're going to write a Bible study, do not just write a Bible study on Ezra or Nehemiah. So what did I do 10 years ago? I wrote a Bible study just on Nehemiah. But you're not supposed to do that. So we're going to try to keep them together. So if we were going to sum up the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and sum all of this up, here's what we would have. We would have Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, Ezra bringing the word of God back, and Nehemiah and his people rebuilding Jerusalem. If we want to think of this in a way that would be easily memorable, we think worship, word, walls, okay? The temple is Ezra 1 through 6. The word goes back in Ezra 7 through, I can't remember, 10 maybe. And then Nehemiah is the story of the rebuilding of the walls. This really helps if you want to do a deep dive and a study of these three groups of people that go back from the scattered in the Persian Empire to rebuild. Now, I know you were thinking, so glad she's talking about Ezra. I am so glad that she gave us a timeline from the mid-500s BC. And now, if only she could give us a world map. I am here for you. A world map of the Persian Empire. Now, the reason why I want to show you this map is because this is going to help us understand how dire the situation was for the exiles. Remember, either they themselves or their forefathers had completely walked away from the Lord. They had been deported out of their homeland. Here is Jerusalem. They have been pulled out. This is where the temple is. This is where the promised land is. This is where their priestly system was. This is where their sacrifices took place. This is where they spoke the language of Hebrew. This is where they had their festivals. Everything was here. And they get scattered all the way to Babylon. And then when King Cyrus takes over, he is all the way here in Susa. This is hundreds of miles. And remember, nobody is getting on an airplane to go back and forth in an hour or two. This is a hundred mile journey that is going to hundreds of miles of journey that will take anywhere from four to five months. It is dangerous. And Jerusalem at this point is broken down. The temple has been destroyed. The walls have been destroyed. It's poor. It's under foreign occupation. So as we just read in Ezra chapter one and we get our bearings, we see that God's people have been scattered, but there is a call for some to return. Now, there's another passage of scripture. There's another piece of information that we need to understand in chapter one, not just King Cyrus and who he is and not just the Persian empire, but we also need to understand what is this word of the Lord to Jeremiah that was being fulfilled under King Cyrus? What was that word? Well, we find that word in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back from this place, back to Jerusalem. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the promise that is being fulfilled. Some of you will recognize Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future or an expected end. Maybe someone has given that to you on a card. Maybe if you lived in the center of evangelicalism in the 80s, someone cross-stitched that verse for you and gave it to you. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. And that verse gets thrown around all over the place. And we're like, oh, the Lord's going to, oh, he's going to give you this awesome thing. He's going to do this. He's going to do that because the Lord wants to prosper you and he wants to bless you and he wants to give you an expected hope. And that is true. But here's what is really important for us today. That verse is for us, but that verse was not written to us. That verse was written to the scattered exiles who were living so far away from the presence of the Lord, who had dug roots in Persia, who had made homes, had adapted the culture, enjoyed the essential oils. They were rooted, and in their mind, the big question of this entire time period is are we still the people of God? Will God remain true to his covenant promise? Yeah, we know that there was a promise back before the exile, but we have messed this thing up so badly. Is the promise gonna hold true after the fact? And, and that is the question. And if you're anything like me, that is sometimes the question that I ask myself based on life circumstances that have happened in my life. Is God still faithful? Is he still true? Are we still, am I still the people of the covenant? That's the big question that is being asked. And Jeremiah comes to the people and he goes, yes, there is going to be a day. The Lord will keep his promise and he will bring you back. And this is in Ezra, what, this is the moment that this happens. This is the moment where we see God fulfilling his promise to his people. But we just cannot read too quickly because we want to make sure that we understand how unlikely it was for any of the people to really think that God would actually do what he said. They were so far from where they had been. And now King Cyrus says, hey, anybody, in verse three, anybody that wants to return, guess what you can, but here's, here's what's so important, is that you didn't have to return. Not everybody returned. In fact, most people did not return. Most people stayed where they were in Persia. It was pretty comfortable, and they stayed where they were. But there was a few that went back. You'll notice in verse 5 of Ezra chapter 1 that it was those whose hearts God had stirred. That word roused or stirred or to wake up, to excite. And God had gotten a hold of certain hearts, but not everybody chose to answer that call. And so I do want to just say at the very top today that what is so important is that we don't want to miss it. 
And if the Lord is stirring your heart or if he has stirred your heart at some point and you have pushed that off and shelved it, the Lord will allow that. But that is a tragedy. So if the Lord is stirring your heart, get on board and follow him. And that's what the exiles did. They went all those hundreds of miles to go back and to rebuild their temple. All right, I want you to turn forward to chapter three, and we're going to get to verse six. Those who have been stirred, those who have followed, they have gone back to Jerusalem. They have made the dangerous journey. And it says in verse six that on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. What is this verse showing us? It's showing us that they have not even been able to lay the foundation of the temple, which is the whole reason that they have gone back. And yet notice what they do. They offer burnt sacrifices. This was their worship. This is the way that they worshiped. And I love this. And this is such a conviction to me because I don't know if you are like me in this, but a lot of times I want to wait until life gets the way I want it to get. And then I will serve the Lord. You know, it's like, Lord, okay, if I can be married, then I will serve you. If I can have kids, I will serve you. If I can get rid of the people who are in my life, I will serve you. If I can get promoted, I will serve you. If I can just get enough money in the bank, I will serve you. When I retire, I will serve you. When I finish my master's, when I'm out of school, when I get the job I want, and we put off serving. But, but here's number one for us today in your worship guide. Don't wait for your circumstances to improve to start serving the Lord. They did not have great circumstances. They didn't even have the foundation of the temple, but they began to worship and they began to serve. So don't wait for your circumstances to improve until you start serving the Lord. What are you doing while you are waiting for life to change? And they... The Lord always has a place for us. He always has something for us to do. Drop down to verse 10 of chapter 3. I love this section. It says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully, The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard from far away. We have a very interesting picture that is happening here, and that is they get done with the the foundation. They have this amazing dedication of the foundation or a celebration. And half of the people, the younger people, those probably who were born in exile or who'd never remembered Solomon's temple, they were like, this is awesome. We are so proud of ourselves. We love this foundation, looks amazing. And they are shouting joyfully. But what else is happening? There is a group of people who are weeping. They are weeping and they are the older Levites, the older priests who knew what Solomon's original temple looked like 
And Solomon's temple was everything to the people of Israel. Remember, Solomon's temple is before. Then there's the exile. And now this new temple looked so small. It looked so flimsy that the older priests were weeping. And I, I think that they were expecting for God just to do an exact replica of what was before. And I love this passage because so often in my life, I think, Lord, if you will just do what I had, if you'll just give me what I had, if you'll just do the vision that I had in my head, if you will just give me an exact replica of what was before, well, then I will rejoice. Then I will be happy. But the Lord is always doing a new thing and he was doing a new thing here. Now we find at the very top of chapter five, and we won't turn there in Ezra, that there were two prophets that came and ministered to the people during this time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And I, I want you to hear what Haggai has to say to the people as they are in the middle of this building project and as they are in the middle of what looks so seemingly small and insignificant. Now I know, again, you were just thinking, if Kelly can hit Ezra and Haggai, then we are really in great shape today. So I am here for you. And we are Haggai chapter two. And listen to what Haggai says to the people when they're thinking about how small this temple looks. He says in verse three, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, for I am with you. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. This, if you have any sense of humor at all, is hilarious. Because Haggai is coming to the people, and he sees the work that they have done, Half the people are ha happy about it. Half the people are sobbing. And he goes, look, who among you saw the temple in its former glory? In other words, who, who remembers and saw Solomon's temple? Well, how does the temple look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing by comparison? In other words, Haggai's like, guys, this is bad. This is really bad. And I've decided that Haggai would not make a great therapist in 2023. Right? You come, you see Haggai, and he's like, how was your life before? It looks really bad right now. I will see you next week. And you can make your check out to the compassionate ministries of Haggai. So what, I mean, he, but he's being honest. He's like, I know this looks terrible. But then he goes on to say the most amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, this is bad. Yeah, it's nothing like it was before the exile. But be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Why? because the Lord is with you. And then in verse five, and this is profound, he says essentially the same promise, the same God that, that took you all out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery that was there for you in the Exodus, his spirit still remains with you. And we might just read that and just kind of cruise past that, but that is massive. Because the people who had, were scattered for decades in the Persian empire, they're, they remember the stories of the Exodus, but they're like, there's no way. There's no way that God's spirit is still going to be faithful to us. Not after all of this, not after all of this mess. And by the way, if you were wondering if the mess that the people were in and why they were scattered, if it was because of their own fault or someone else's fault, it's their fault. They are completely to blame. 
And yet what we see is God is compassionate, God is faithful, and God is merciful to allow them to come back and rebuild. You will see the word rebuild throughout the next several weeks as Jeff teaches through Nehemiah. And it is all throughout Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are not books about building. They are books about rebuilding. So if your life is broken down and it is a mess and you can actually point back and go, yeah, a lot of that is because of my choices or because of my decisions. The Lord is a God of rebuilding. And even though things look small, and even though there might be some weeping because you are comparing what God had done before, this is so important for us to understand. We do not want to miss the new thing that God is doing in our lives because we're clinging to an old vision. Do not miss the new thing that God is doing in your life because you are clinging to an old vision. That's what the priests were doing. And that's why Haggai was like, yeah, it looks terrible. This is terrible compared to what was there before. But that's okay because the Lord is doing a new thing. And then he goes on, we didn't read it, but he goes on in verse seven of Haggai chapter two. And he says, and by the way, the final glory of this temple or of the temple, I should say, is gonna so far outweigh even Solomon's temple. The Lord is with you. The people had repented. They had sought the Lord with their heart. And as a result, Haggai is saying, continue on, continue the work. Don't miss what God is doing. We find out at the end of chapter four of Ezra that the work after they lay the foundation, the work gets opposed and it stops for 16 years, 16 years. And the, the people are like, well, I mean, the king, the new king is against us and we can't do any more work on the Lord's temple. And even that, that, that's what God has called us to do. We just are gonna have to just go back to living our lives because we don't really have a choice. It got really hard to obey and I'm happy to obey when it's easy. But if I have to obey when it's hard, then sorry, we're gonna just have to make other plans. So we find out again from Haggai, and this is in chapter one, he comes to them in verse seven. And he says, the Lord of armies says, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. That prophecy is for the people who have halted the work for 16 years. It comes right to them. And he says, listen, you guys get back to the mission, get back to the vision. You are working on your house. While, while you are doing all these awesome things to your house and to your agenda and for your life and your future, you have completely abandoned the house of the Lord and it is lying in ruins. And how relevant is that for us today? I mean, when I read that verse, it just, it just arrested me because I thought, oh my goodness, Lord, that your house is not just about a building today, but it's, it's about people. It's about reaching out. 
serving, loving, making disciples, telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. But how often do my own priorities and my own agenda topple the agenda that the Lord has? And then Haggai says, listen, you wonder why you bring your harvest in and the Lord just blows on it and it just scatters to nothing. He said, it's because you've lost the vision. And I I just want to say that if the Lord is just blowing on your own harvest, the material possessions, your own agenda, the dream that you have for your life, all that, if the Lord is thwarting that and you keep coming back empty-handed, I would like to say to you this morning that I think that that is God loving you and that that is God blessing you. It's the people that he's not doing that to, that, he's, that are not his children, that he's not concerned about. But if you are feeling thwarted, which I have so many times in my life, that's the Lord pulling you around and saying, get back to the vision. Because here's, here's the reality for us today. When our own house or our own agenda becomes more important than God's house, we lose the joy of both. We lose the joy of our own calling and our own homes and our own communities And we lose the joy of the ministry and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because look what was happening back, the people at the temple. Not only was God's house in ruin, but their house was in ruins. But when we get our priorities straight, and I will will testify to this as someone who has had my own agenda a lot of my life, that when my agenda becomes more important than the Lord's agenda, I don't have joy in either place. But when the joy of the Lord and when Jesus is my delight and my strength and I am serving him, that is when I have joy, not just in ministry, but joy in my own personal life. He can take care of both. And we're going to be looking over the next several weeks about how you and I can be part of the house of the Lord and what he is doing in our communities. And we want to make sure that we have his agenda as first in our lives. All right, we will go back to Ezra and we will begin to wrap up here in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. They finally get back to work. They heed Haggai's words. And through the power of the Lord, it says in chapter 6, verse 16, then the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs, as well as 12 male goats as a sin offering for all Israel, one for each Israelite tribe. 100 bulls and 200 rams sounds pretty impressive. Sounds like a really great dedication. They finally got this temple rebuilt. But if you were to go back in the first Kings and you were to read about the dedication of Solomon's temple, remember we're before, after, before the exile, Solomon's temple, after exile, this smaller temple. If you go back and you read about that dedication, they had 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep at that dedication. This is so much smaller. But that second prophecy, not just Haggai, but Zechariah, he came to his people. And maybe you will know this verse off the top of your head, but he comes to them and he says, look guys, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. Just because this looks small doesn't mean 
that it is small. When God is at work, the day of small things can be the day of great things. When God is at work in your life, the day of small things can be the day of great things. We have to ask ourselves, how does the book of Ezra end? How does the book of Nehemiah end? Were these ventures successful, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, bringing the word of God back? Was it successful? Well, if you get to the end of Ezra, if you want to, if the Titans are losing by the third quarter, you can read the rest of the Ezra account. And you know what happens? They are standing out in the rain. Ezra is in sackcloth. He's mourning. He is devastated. The people are in sin. They are having dissolved to dissolve covenant relationships, it is a nightmare and the book ends. But you're like, oh, but Kelly, you told us at the top that Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. So that's really not how the book ends. The book ends truly at the end of Nehemiah. So what happens at the end of the Nehemiah after they dedicate the wall and they have this amazing thing? It's like, woo, new temple, woo, new wall. Everybody is so excited, woo, woo, woo. And at the very end of Nehemiah, they desecrate the temple. They desecrate the word of God by breaking the Sabbath and they compromise the gates of the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah gets so crazy mad that he begins to rip the beards of people out of their faces. The end. So we have to ask ourselves, was this a success? The worship, the word, the wall, was it a success? I think it was wildly successful. I just think it wasn't nearly successful enough. Because even though they rebuilt the temple, even though they were trying to live by God's word, and even though they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, their hearts had not changed. They did not have the transformation that Jesus Christ would bring to hearts. And so this is last for us today, that the endings of Ezra and Nehemiah make us long for a better ending. They make us long for a better ending and they make us put our hope in something other than what we can construct with our own hands. In John's gospel, chapter two, Jesus comes to the temple, the temple that the people of Ezra or Zerubbabel that they had rebuilt. But of course now at this point, it's Herod's temple and he is rebuilt on top of it and it's massive and it's elaborate and incredible and Jesus goes in and he sees that they've turned it into a den of thieves and he's pretty upset about that and then the Jews come to him and they're sitting there at the temple and they say to him in verse 18 they say what sign the Jews replied to him what sign will you show us for doing these things and Jesus answered destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days so at this moment they're thinking that he's pointing to this massive temple that the people had worked for so hard on and for so long on, and then it worked even another 46 years in recent history at, during Jesus' time, and they think he's pointing to that temple. He goes, just destroy this. You're going to destroy this, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. The temple for the Jewish people 
was the very place where they met with the living God. And in this moment, in John chapter 2, Jesus says to the Jewish people in his midst and his disciples around him, and he says, that temple, this physical temple, this is no longer the place where people will meet with the living God. See, there's going to be a day where you will destroy the temple of my body, but I will raise it up after three days. And it will be for the forgiveness of sin once and for all. And for anybody who comes to Jesus Christ and and says, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I desire your forgiveness. And I receive you as Lord, not just of my life, but over the entire cosmos. That person goes from death to life. That person becomes a child of the living God. And then that person, no matter what the before was, can say, the Lord's promise still holds. Jesus Christ, he is the one where I meet with the living God because he is God himself. And that is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are pointing to. And for us, I hope you hear that gospel message today that no matter how you came in and no matter how much you want to get to the before, allow God to do what he is doing right now. Let him do the new thing. And if you have questioned whether or not he is still good or if he is still God, let Jesus answer that question for you today. Through the testimony of his own death and his resurrection on your behalf and on my behalf. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity for us to open your word I thank you, God, that the endings of Ezra and Nehemiah are not how things end, but that you have come to make us new and to change us. Lord, minister to our spirits today, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on a single sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Church Center app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.